Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 296, Darkening Skies. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a pumpkin spice latte per month. And thank you very much to James, Lizzie, and Samantha for signing up already. It begins in France. The struggle for power between King Louis IV and Hugh the Great had been raging for quite some time. When we last visited the continent, Hugh the Great, King Otto of Germany, Duke William of Normandy, Count Herbert II, and various other supporting characters were allied against King Louis IV, the Archbishop of Reims, and Count Arnulf of Flanders. In response, King Athelstan tried to intervene by sending a fleet to support the embattled king. But then, Athelstan died, and rather than supporting the young French king, the English fleet instead opted to raid the French coast. And it might not surprise you to hear that things hadn't really improved following that. While King Edmund was desperately trying to reestablish England and fend off Scandinavian claims to the throne, King Louis IV of France was also deep in it. And the waves that this conflict was causing were about to come barreling across the channel, and hit the shores of England. And shortly after King Athelstan died, King Louis IV must have realized exactly how bad his situation was. The balance of power had been shifting hard towards his rival, Hugh. The walls were beginning to close in. But Louis wasn't without recourse. One of the biggest threats to his rule wasn't actually Hugh, it was King Otto of Germany. And their conflict was simple. It was over one simple issue who would rule over Lorraine. And now that Louis had lost a major ally, and the English fleets were raiding his coast for some reason, Louis decided to cut his losses, and acknowledge that Germany had overlordship over Lorraine. And by doing that, he brought an end to their war, and also stripped Hugh of a key ally. And besides, it feels good to get things off your plate. But Otto wasn't the only rival circling the throne. There was also Duke William of Normandy, and he'd been a significant problem for Louis. And it started all the way back when King Arnulf of Flanders, who was another cousin of Louis's, decided that he would grab a chunk of William's land while no one was looking. The Count probably thought that no one would notice or care, but William sure as f*** noticed, and he definitely cared. And things have been spiraling out of control ever since. In fact, William had been so brutal and extreme in his response to Count Arnulf that he ended up getting excommunicated. And that's in the 10th century, you really have to go over the top to get excommunicated for being brutal in the 10th century. But William managed to pull it off, and while we don't know exactly what he did to do that, it must have been bad. Needless to say, now that Otto was dealt with, handling this Norman nightmare was next on the list. So Louis made an offer. If William and his army of maniacal French-speaking Vikings could just find a way to pledge loyalty to the crown and promise not to raise a sword against him then Louis would confirm that William held the right to all the lands that had been originally given to his father, Rollo. And yes, it was that Rollo. It was a good deal. And so with that, another peace was established, and another ally of Hughes was neutralized. Well, sort of. See, these were the Normans, and for them, there isn't really peace, just an opportunity for different targets. So promptly after signing that agreement with Louis... William turned and invaded his other neighbor, 
Louis's foster brother, Duke Alan II of Brittany. And you'll remember him as the guy who hunted boars with a wooden staff for funsies. Now, naturally, Louis couldn't turn a blind eye to this invasion. Not only was he a foster brother, he was also a key ally. He had to do something. And that actually might have been William Longsword's plan all along. Because one thing was becoming clear. The Normans were a problem. But regardless of the plan, the fact is that even though he was fighting off Hugh the Great, Louis was now in the position where he had to spend his recently acquired leverage to broker a peace treaty between Allen and William. And he did that at Rouen in 941. And the terms of that agreement give you a sense of how much power William held. Because William was allowed to retain part of the Breton lands that he had seized. And in return, all he had to do was call off his band of maniacs and act peacefully. This was actually an even better plan than the last one. William was making out like a bandit. But with that, finally, the issue with William was settled. And that meant that this time, for sure, an ally of Hughes was pacified. The balance of power in France was tipping towards Louis. But Hugh had options too. There was always the Archbishop of Reims. See, the Archbishop was one of Louis's most staunch allies, and he was also a figure in French politics who commanded a great deal of power economically and politically, which meant, as a consequence, he had a lot of military power too. This made him a natural target. Furthermore, there was already bad blood flowing through this particular Archbishopric. You see, there had been a previous Archbishop of Reims, and he was still alive, and he wanted his old job back. And this previous bishop also happened to be the son of Count Herbert II. And Count Herbert II was the guy who had deposed Louis's father, King Charles the Simple. Are you following what's happening here? I mean, it feels a bit like a microcosm for this whole mess. You have a whole bunch of people fighting proxy wars against each other. And these wars are multi-generational. And most of the people involved are related. Because actually, Count Herbert was a distant cousin of Louis as well. Trying to solve this mess is a bit like trying to play a game of pickup sticks, but with murder. Anyway, so in 942, Hugh the Great and Count Herbert II successfully captured Reims, and immediately upon doing so, they deposed the Archbishop and installed Herbert's son back into his old job. And that also meant that the old Archbishop of Reims, Louis' ally, was demoted from Bishop to just Artaud the unemployed guy in the French court. And now, as you might have guessed, he wanted his old job back. But with the culmination of over a decade of conflict that was spanning generations, now we saw a huge chunk of power being moved over to Hugh the Great side of the scales, which again shifted the balance of power in France. And after this, Louis did something odd. And I don't know if he was trying to add to his own political and military power, or if he simply didn't know when to shut his yap. But whatever the cause... King Louis started asserting that in spite of his agreement with Otto, actually he did have a claim to Lorraine, all thanks to his marriage to Gerberga. And here's the thing, if Germany was ruled by anyone else, I can imagine that that assertion would have resulted in a new declaration of war. Louis was all but daring Otto to get back involved. But Otto wasn't anyone else. He was Otto the Great. He didn't know it yet, but he was a future Holy Roman Emperor. Otto had what kids today might call big dick energy. And so he ignored Louis' posturing and instead took an undeniably imperial action. He decided he would solve the underlying problems in France through statecraft. 
even though he was German, he would step into French politics and broker peace between these two French aristocrats. And the agreement was masterful. He managed to pressure Hugh the Great into agreeing to perform an act of submission before Louis. And in exchange, all Louis had to do is leave Reims in the hands of Count Herbert's son. Well, he had to do one other thing as well. And I'm pretty sure the second thing was the real point of this agreement. He had to waive all of his claims to Lorraine. And so with that agreement, suddenly the balance of power shifted to Otto. Well played. But with the establishment of peace between Hugh and Louis, the time had come finally for Duke William of Normandy and Count Arnulf of Flanders to bring their fight to an end as well. Because yeah, they were still fighting. Even though William had resolved most of his conflicts, that fight with Arnulf was still raging. There was a pretty big grudge there. I mean, William had fought so hard against Arnulf that the Pope got involved at one point. But the realm needed peace. So Count Erluin of Montreuil, who was actually an ally and vassal of King Louis, decided to get involved. And he persuaded Duke William to meet with Count Arnulf of Flanders so that they could establish terms for peace. They would meet on an isolated island on the River Somme. And at this meeting on the River Island, William was assassinated. And in the chaos that followed, King Louis moved quickly. He marshaled his troops and advanced on Rouen. And there, he received pledges of fealty from some of the Norman nobility, and with the support of Hugh the Great, he decreed that the duchy would go to a boy named Richard, who was the son of Duke William and a Breton concubine. Now, Richard was only 10 years old, which meant that he couldn't actually rule despite his title of being a duke. Instead, he would have a guardian who would rule for him. And guess whose job it was to pick Richard's guardian? King Louis. That's a lucky twist. And Louis decided that Richard would be best raised by Louis' own ally and vassal, Count Erluin of Montreux. The same guy who had arranged for that meeting that resulted in the death of Richard's dad. What a coincidence. And shortly after Richard discovered that he wasn't a duke, but rather a prisoner, King Louis directly seized all the lands of Normandy, split them up, and granted the lower lands to his former rival, and now partner in crime, Hugh the Great. And then he gave Rouen to his faithful ally, Count Erluin of Montreux. And it's important to note here that the official story at the time was that the assassin who killed William was not only just some rando, but actually Erluin himself avenged William by killing that rando assassin. So rather than being the guy who arranged the whole shady meeting and assassination, the party line was that Erluin was getting all these gifts because he was, you know, full of honor for defending William, though not successfully. It sounds a bit rich to me. Erluin organized this meeting, was present at the assassination, and then William's enemies bestowed tremendous amounts of wealth upon him afterwards. Maybe it's just me, but I get the sense that Erluin was definitely being rewarded for killing someone. I just don't think it was the rando assassin. Furthermore, the speed in which Louis moved, the closeness between Louis and Erluin, and the raw disingenuousness of how he handled Richard, makes me think that the crown might have been in on this from the start. At the very least, it's suspect. And stick a pin in what happened here, because I'm going to reference it later. Anyway, 
So things kept turning in Louis's favor. For example, in February of 943, Louis's rival, Count Herbert II, died of natural causes. And King Louis hadn't forgotten that Count Herbert pretty much started this whole mess by deposing his father. And so, as punishment, the king made a demand that will send a chill up the spine of all the Crusader Kings II players who are listening. King Louis forced the sons of Count Herbert to accept Gavelkind. Basically, what Louis did was demand that all of Herbert's lands would be split evenly between his four living sons, thus cracking the foundations of what had been previously a formidable power block. And so, rather than consolidating power in the hands of one son, and thus making that part of the family more powerful, instead, it would be endlessly broken up. Think about it this way. If primogeniture is the way for a wealthy and powerful family to increase and expand their holdings, Gavelkind was the opposite. With every act, we see King Louis moving to break his enemies, while also seeking to add to his own power. And so with this move, the balance again was clearly shifting towards him. And I wonder if this is the reason why we also see him regularly handing gifts off to his chief rival, Hugh the Great. Because right after this, we see Louis restoring Hugh's original title, the Duke of the Franks, and even granting him rule over Burgundy. Furthermore, early on, when he went and broke the power of Normandy, he gave Hugh a big chunk of that land. It seems like he was trying to keep him in line, which suggests that the Cold War between Hugh and Louis had returned. And while Louis was clearly winning that war, he was offering Hugh consolation prizes in order to keep the peace. But there was a problem with that plan. In Hugh's world, second place was first loser, and he didn't want table scraps. I imagine that tensions in the French court were increasing on a daily basis, and things fully exploded in the summer of 945. Out of nowhere, there was a massive revolt in Rouen. Count Erluin was taken by surprise, and in response, King Louis marshaled his troops and joined up with Erluin and rode to break the revolt and restore his friend, the Count, to his place of power. But to Louis's surprise, the rebels were a bit more organized than expected. They not only knew how to arrange their forces, they also knew the route that the king and Erluin were taking, because outside of Bayeux, they ambushed the king. And in the ensuing chaos, Erluin was killed, and the king was forced to flee, and he rode headlong to the city of Rouen. You know, the city where the revolt was based out of. Which actually is a move that I can't make heads or tails out of. I mean, who could have predicted that it would be a terrible plan to flee to the city that was in open rebellion against you? Apparently not King Louis, because that's exactly what he did. And this is going to surprise no one. He got captured. So now we're in a hostage situation. And the Normans had a king. But there was still hope. Hugh the Great was on the job. He was the Duke of the Franks after all. And with the king held hostage, that pretty much placed France under his care. So he rode out to handle the negotiations. And when Hugh returned to Queen Gerberga, he told her that the Normans said that they would release the king in exchange for both of their sons, Lothair and Charles, meaning that the rebels wanted both of Louis's heirs to the throne. 
It was an odd request for people that were told were a band of rebels and former Vikings. It was also an unreasonable request. And so the queen refused. But she did offer an alternative. Instead, she sent Bishop Guy, and also one of her sons, the youngest one, Charles. Louis' eldest son and heir to the throne, Lothair, would remain at court. And at that moment, poor Prince Charles must have really felt his spare credentials. But despite any hurt feelings, the gambit worked. King Louis was released, and he was handed over to Hugh the Great, who then imprisoned him and handed the king over to his ally, Count Theobald of Blois. And at that moment, I wonder if Louis realized what had happened. The contemporary records just talk about this as a blow-by-blow event involving the Normans, but modern historians largely agree that what happened here was a power play, that the whole thing had been orchestrated by Hugh the Great. And the dude wasn't subtle about it, which is why Queen Gerberga reached out to her brother, King Otto, and begged for his support. And across the Channel, in England, King Edmund also received word of what was happening. And what was happening didn't look good. I mean, that revolt in Rouen was probably Hugh. Granted, the Normans did have plenty of reasons to want to revolt. I mean, they were Norman, and Count Erluin wasn't, which probably did ruffle some feathers. There's also the fact that Erluin was involved in the death of Duke William, and while Erluin was claiming that he was actually the hero in that story, it looked pretty fishy. And there was the fact that he let Louis and Hugh take all of Duke Richard's lands, which at the very least was pretty terrible guardianship. But the truth is that Hugh had more reason than most to want to see the downfall of Erluin. I mean, King Louis had been increasing his power significantly as of late, and he had been relying a lot on Erluin. Eliminating him would clip the king's wings. Then there was the fact that the rebels wanted both of Louis's heirs in negotiations. They didn't want a change of leadership. They didn't want a grant of independence. They didn't want any of the things that typically came from a revolt like this. They wanted the heirs to the throne, which was something that wouldn't directly impact Rouen, but it would devastate the king's dynasty and enhance Hugh's power. Then you have the cherry on top. When Louis got released, Hugh just up and imprisoned him. It seems pretty clear what happened. And so, in early 946, King Edmund of England took action. And he was in a great position to do something about it. He had consolidated his power over England. He had restored English power to where it had been under Athelstan. Furthermore, Edmund was embracing his imperial status of the throne. And he was starting to look outside of his borders. Consequently, intervening on behalf of his nephew would fit well within that purview. So while King Louis was imprisoned at Blois, King Edmund was flexing his muscles. Negotiators were sent to Hugh the Great, demanding the release and restoration of King Louis. And these weren't warm and kindly requests that he was sending. Edmund was threatening Hugh. And the implication was clear. If Louis wasn't released, England would intervene. And that was a dangerous threat. England's wars were over. The empire was being reestablished. And when he sent messengers, he wasn't just speaking for himself. If England got involved, he very well could bring Scotland and Wales right along with him. Edmund was exactly where he wanted to be. And now, he just needed to wait for Hugh to see reason and agree to his demands. A month passed. 
and he was still waiting. Then a couple months passed. What was taking so long? Was Hugh trying to save face? Edmund must have been getting antsy by about March or April of 946. Because by then, King Otto of Germany had answered his sister's call and invaded France. He besieged Reims, deposed the Archbishop, Herbert II's son, and put the unemployed Artaud back in his office. And now he was out in the field, desperately fighting to restore Louis to the throne. King Otto was demonstrating that he was an imperial force of nature, and he was making his mark on the map of Europe. And meanwhile, King Edmund was just riding around with his court in England. And given the type of king he was, and how he'd been threatening Hugh the Great, I can't help but wonder how Edmund felt about that, and whether he was making preparations of his own. I mean, was he trying to raise an army to fight alongside Otto and in support of his nephew? I don't know. The record in England goes dark. We just know that he issued demands and waited. Even though Edmund was stuck waiting and trying to work out what to do next while King Otto was riding around looking like a true emperor, there still was some good news for him. May 26th was coming up, and that was the Feast of St. Augustine. The great thing about medieval life was that there are feast days all the time. And given the number of feast days in the medieval calendar, there's actually a really good chance that a medieval serf had more days off than you do. But not all feast days were equal. And St. Augustine's Day was a really big feast day. Because St. Augustine was the guy who brought Christianity to the Anglo-Saxons. So even though the feasts were pretty common, this party was going to be off the hook. Especially for the English nobility. I mean, sure, you'd have the sermons, and those sermons would probably go on way longer than anyone really wanted. But after that, you had the food, you had the drink, you had all the socializing and games and entertainment. All of that feasting culture from the days of Penda was still there. It was just being rebranded as Christian. And so this was a day that people were probably really looking forward to. And as it happened, when the big day arrived, the king's court was at his royal villa in Pucklechurch, Gloucestershire. And his entourage would have spent weeks planning for this, ensuring that all the proper supplies were ready, and that the chefs knew what foods to prepare, that the entertainment was arranged. For the individuals that maintained his residence at Pucklechurch, this was an all-hands-on-deck event. And eventually, the holiday arrived. And after the prayers, and after all the sermons, King Edmund entered the feasting hall and was joined by the favored members of his court. And considering that the power he now exercised was comparable to Athelstan, King Edmund's inner circle was likely just as prestigious as his brothers had been. The feasting hall would have been a veritable who's who of English and perhaps even British social life. It would have been buzzing with conversation and laughter, with people reminiscing about their triumphs over the North, with people talking about what would come next for England. After all, Edmund was a young king, and he was already showing promise. The room would have been full of life. And then Edmund noticed someone in the crowd. His name was Leofa. He was a thief who had been banished six years earlier. And yet there he was, at the king's feast, sitting next to one of the noblemen that Edmund had invited. And to the king's horror, this nobleman had no idea who he was sitting next to. No one seemed to have noticed. Edmund looked around, to his personal guard, to the members of his own Watanagamot, 
no one was reacting to Leofa's presence. The raw indignation of it all, that Leofa wouldn't merely return to England, but he would dare to come to his feasting table? It was outrageous, and spurred on by a sense of righteous fury, Edmund leapt from his table, grabbed Leofa by his hair, and threw him to the ground. As Leofa fell, however, he grabbed the king and pulled him down along with him. And in the tangle of limbs and feasting finery, Leofa found the opportunity to draw his dagger. And then, twisting so his body was on top of Edmund, he plunged it deep into the king's chest, using his own body weight to drive it further, delivering a mortal wound. The room exploded into chaos. The king's guard, the nobility, the attendants, everyone fell upon Leofa. And though he lashed out with his dagger, wounding some of the attendants, he was quickly overcome, and the crowd tore him limb from limb. Thus came an end to the reign of King Edmund, son of King Edward. Or at least that's how William of Malmesbury told it. But modern historians like Halloran are taking another look at that story. And they're now theorizing that William, who was writing generations after this event, was repeating a fiction. A bit of propaganda told to counteract another story about how the king died. Namely, that he had been the victim of political assassination. And double back and have another listen to the story of Edmund's death. It's a bit convenient, isn't it? Some criminal exile manages to make it back to England, and he's not just hiding out in some village. He actually goes into a highly exclusive party run by the court that exiled him, and no one notices him. That's just treated as totally normal, like something that happens all the time. It's also treated as normal that instead of going and, I don't know, alerting his guard, the king decided to engage in personal combat. Furthermore, there's the issue with the fact that before anyone could say, hey, how did you get into England and how on earth did you get into this party? Who let you in and what was the plan here? Instead, the assassin was just killed before anything could be answered. I mean, this is even more fishy than Air Luin's story about how he was one of the only people who witnessed William's assassination. But don't worry, you guys, he wasn't involved and actually he totally killed the assassin. But no, you wouldn't know him, he was a total rando. But yeah, he's dead, don't worry about it. The whole thing just seems way too convenient. And the fact is, King Edmund had a lot of people who would want him dead. I mean, he was a king of England. He had a lot of enemies. But I would say there are actually three main suspects for this. The first suspect is the reason why this episode involves so much French history. It's possible that Hugh the Great sent the assassin. It wouldn't be out of character for him, given the state of French politics. Furthermore, he had plenty of reasons to want Edmund dead. I mean, King Edmund was threatening to intervene in his affairs. But now that he was dead, well, things might be different. And something to know here is that when Edmund's brother, Adred, takes the throne, he shows absolutely no interest in getting involved in Frankish politics. None. So if this was an assassination intended to send a message, it looks like that message was received. Also, do you remember what Athelstan was doing right before he died suddenly at a young age without any explanation? He was trying to intervene in Frankish politics and bring war against Hugh the Great. I mean, maybe it's a coincidence, but we now have two kings of England who died premature deaths right after they decided to take a stand against Hugh. So personally, he's my prime suspect, 
because I'm straight up not buying that whole Leofa story. The second possibility is the English nobility itself. Edmund, like Athelstan, was looking to drag England into a war in France. And England was already war-weary. Furthermore, while it seems pretty clear that Edmund and Athelstan were comfortable acting in an imperial capacity, and both were acting as leaders of the West and also dynastic leaders, imperial actions wasn't how Wessex did war. Wessex didn't go and fight in foreign lands because some extended family member of the king offended some other extended family member of the king. Wessex fought for territory, or they fought for loot, or they fought in defense of territory, or to establish overlordship, or sometimes they fought because the king of Mercia made them fight. But what Athelstan and Edmund had asked the nobility to do wasn't any of that, and as a consequence, it wasn't part of their cultural understanding of war, at least not yet. And having just come off of several wars, some of which have been really bruising, I can imagine that they might not have wanted to get sucked into a conflict between Hugh and Louis, a conflict that had already been raging for eight years and clearly wasn't stopping anytime soon in order to achieve essentially nothing for the nobility. And taking out Edmund might be one way to put the brakes on that. And just like with option one, the fact that Adred immediately abandoned any interest in Frankish politics does raise an eyebrow. Then you have option three. There's another group that wasn't overly fond of Edmund. A group that was actually a lot closer to him than the Franks. And it was a group that had a long history of political assassination. Furthermore, this was a group that the House of Wessex really wanted to convince that they were a part of England. And thus far, they've been a bit recalcitrant on that. And if they just out and called them a bunch of regicidal dicks, that probably wouldn't have helped the cause. I'm talking, of course, about the Northumbrians. The Northumbrian nobility would have had access to the court. I mean, they were recently annexed, and we know that figures like Archbishop Wolfstan and others regularly traveled in that court. Furthermore, the Northumbrian nobility had plenty of reasons to be beefing with King Edmund. And it's clear from their actions that thus far, they didn't really see the invasion of the North as an act to unify England. Rather, they seem to have seen it as an occupation. And here's the thing about the Northumbrian theory. Even though England was in the middle of a crisis... Even though the kingdom was in chaos following the assassination, perhaps even more so than when Athelstan died. Even though every sign pointed towards Northumbria announcing its own rival king, just like it had done in 939, they didn't. There was no opposition to the ascension of King Adred. And for Northumbria, that's kind of weird. And it makes me wonder if they had a deal. But the fact is, it's hard to say exactly what happened there. And the deeper that you dive into this, the more you start to feel like you're trying to map out a grassy knoll. But all I can tell you for certain is that the story of Leofa, which was written nearly 200 years later by William, seems unlikely at best. Oh, and I can also tell you that Hugh the Great was really a shady character. But meanwhile, while England was preparing its funerary arrangements, back in France, after three months of campaigning, King Otto realized that he couldn't defeat Hugh. He simply didn't have the forces necessary. Maybe the plan was for England to join in the fight, and when they didn't show up, Otto was forced to pack it in. Or maybe he just underestimated Hugh. After all, Otto failed to take any of the cities that he targeted. It might also be the fact that Otto's wife, Aidgith, the sister of Edmund, died unexpectedly. She was in her 30s, 
which is a really young age to die. And grief, especially unexpected grief, can really sap the will out of a person. But so can fear of an assassin. I mean, Aedgith was in her 30s. That really was young, even back then. And there were a surprising number of assassinations during this era. And there were even more nobles who just happened to die at unexpectedly young ages as soon as they annoyed the wrong French noble. And maybe Otto saw that and decided he wasn't going to risk it. It makes you wonder. But whatever the cause, after three months of war, the German king readied his men and marched back home. And that left Louis with no other option. He had to accept Hugh's demands. Less than a month after Edmund's assassination, Louis agreed to surrender the city of Leon in exchange for his freedom. And with that, the mighty Carolingian dynasty was reduced to irrelevance in France. Louis may have held the title of king, but Louis no longer held or controlled much of anything. And as Flodorard said, Louis was a king, at least in name. The era of Carolingian dominance was coming to an end. And that might have been a relief for young Adred, because those people had been an absolute jinx for the English court. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com and join our communities. We have a bunch of them, and you can find links to all of them in the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.